Hi there, I'm Kate Meisner. Welcome back to the Trustcast, an Adelman podcast. This week, we're talking about our scarcest and most valuable resource, our time. Our trust data tells us that business has a new mandate to lead and that it needs to do so by responding to shifting priorities. One of those is showing care for employees as people. In her new book, Time Smart, Harvard's Ashley Willens writes that the single most important thing an employer can do for their workforce right now is to honor, value, and protect their time. Edelman's Felicia Joy and Elena Grotto sat down with Ashley to learn more about how we can all be a little smarter with our time. Give it a listen. Hi there, I'm Felicia Joy, founder and head of Edelman's behavioral science practice and an executive vice president on Edelman's business transformation team. And I'm Elena Grotto, an executive vice president and group head of Chicago's business transformation team. You're listening to Trustcast, an Edelman podcast. So the COVID-19 pandemic has really rewritten the social contract between businesses and their employees. Our recently released 2021 Edelman Trust Barometer shows that business has emerged as the most trusted institution with 61%. This is more than government, media, and NGOs. So business has a new mandate to lead and must do so by responding to shifting employee priorities, which includes CEOs demonstrating a more pronounced level of care for employees as whole beings. And along with that, what people have lost most in this pandemic is time itself. And so that brings us to a reality, which is that one of the single most important actions that any employer can take right now is they can honor, they can value, and they can protect their people's time. Yeah, so we've brought along with us on this podcast one of our favorite academics and scholars, Ashley Willens. She's a Harvard Business School professor and author of the new book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. Ashley's research focuses on understanding how the daily and long-term trade-offs people make between time and money impacts their well-being. And this applies for organizations too. So Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So Ashley, let's um, think about uh, how, how to structure our conversation today. We thought that to make the most of our time together, we'd first chat about your research, um, which is of course outlined in your book. Um, and then we wanted to also talk about the problems and the opportunities that the research that you've pointed out raises for business today. I know in the book, you talk a lot about how individuals can be time smart. We also wanna bridge that today and talk about how businesses, how our clients, can be time smart as well, um, given the emphasis that we believe employers need to place on valuing their employees' time. So that's the plan, and we'd love to, to jump right in with our uh, first question. So Felicia, um, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, so Ashley, just to get us grounded in your research and in the book for those who haven't read it yet, and we highly recommend reading it, um, help our listeners understand what you mean by time smart. So I'm going to start by talking about what time smart does not feel like, and that is time poverty. Um, so why I think this topic is so important to study, not just now, but I've been studying it for many years, is how many of us feel time poor 
Like we feel overwhelmed by the demands of work and life. 80% of employed Americans report feeling time poor. And these feelings have negative consequences for our happiness, our social relationships. People who feel time poor are less likely to eat healthy, less likely to exercise, more likely to get divorced or less productive at work. I could go on and on about all of the negative implications that I've documented. And unfortunately, as we've already been alluding to, this feeling has increased during the COVID pandemic, and we can delve into more details about that in a second. So it's really important for individuals and organizations to recognize that if you're feeling overwhelmed by demands of work and life or have employees who feel overwhelmed, this is not uncommon. In fact, it's extremely common. However, there are simple strategies that we can all take in our personal lives to be more time smart, to put time first, to treat it as something that's essential as opposed to something we'll do after we'll get to our to-do list, we'll get to leisure and putting time as a priority in our lives. Um, and something that should be really front and center in the minds of leaders and organizations as well. So being time smart is really starting to cultivate a time-first mindset, protecting our own time, protecting employees' time, and using a series of simple strategies to help everyone, both personally but in a professional context as well, overcome these feelings of time poverty and ultimately live a happier and more fulfilling life. As our resident expert on culture, I know Elena is going to have some questions for you around this, but a quick follow-up to what you just said that I think is important. When you describe time smart in the way that you just did, I think some people might think this applies to developed nations and the financially affluent and the well-to-do, but I know your research took you all the way to Kenya on the continent of Africa and your, your findings held up even in that context. Could you just quickly highlight that? Oh, of course. So what I've observed in my data is that both people who are gainfully employed, and those who are struggling to make ends meet report feeling time poor, usually for very different reasons. So those at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, maybe single parents, they may be underemployed, they may have to commute long distances to get to their places of employment, they're looking for jobs constantly, they don't have the availability of market services, childcare, meal delivery to help solve some of these time demands. And so what we observe in our data is both almost a quadratic pattern. So as you move up the income spectrum, you start to become more time poor. You have more autonomy over how you spend your time on an everyday basis, but then you're expected to be an ideal worker who's constantly responsive and always working. And then at the lower socioeconomic spectrum, we find that because of these barriers that many people are facing, um, lack of access to time-saving services, um, that even those who are struggling financially also tend to be the most time poor among us. So I recently ran an experiment in Kenya showing that time-saving services like meal and laundry delivery services have as strong of a benefit for working women's well-being, reductions in stress, and relationship satisfaction as unconditional cash transfers. And that finding, given that we think about helping people who are struggling financially by giving them cash is pretty striking that time has a similar benefit as cash in that scenario. Ashley, I was really interested in what you just said about, um, you know, what's ideal, uh, what, what, regardless of your socioeconomic um, status, that there's this idea of something we're working towards. And I'm wondering if in your research, you could tell us what does the ideal look like when you're being time smart? How do people know they are time smart? 
So ideal is being able to put important priorities first and not being at the whim of what feels urgent, but is not necessarily important. And this is very hard to do in the modern workplace. So as we've shifted more toward knowledge work and the our objective performance is harder to evaluate, workplaces have started to reward constant responsivity as a proxy for commitment, giving promotions to people who are available at any hour of the day and night. Organizational scholars call some of this constant responsivity, the ideal worker norm. And they also talk about the autonomy paradox. Technology was supposed to free us from the office, but now we take our offices everywhere we go. So a lot of being time smart is about taking a step back and really assessing whether every alert, every notification you get on an everyday basis is truly something that you need to respond to or whether it's a distraction that you could get to later. And this will come up as we start to talk about organizational strategies because a lot of our urgency around over-communication, especially during COVID, is driven by our worry that if we don't instantaneously respond, our colleagues are going to think less of us. So by setting clear norms, having explicit conversations about rules of engagement, this can go a long way. But even in the absence of those conversations, sometimes we're so busy, this is known as the mere urgency effect, that, and we feel so overwhelmed that we'll take on small tasks, we'll check an email, we'll schedule a meeting, even though we have a looming deadline, because that feels easier than working on that looming deadline. So there's a bit of a bit of psychology at play as well. But overall, being time smart is really about not being reactive, but rather proactive about the way that we spend our time on an everyday basis. So Ashley, knowing Edelman's trust research and in our most recent findings that business has this new mandate and is the most trusted institution in society right now, employers have a huge responsibility in terms of time smart systems and policies and practices and norms within their organizations. More specifically, you just talked about some of it, but more specifically, how do you see time smart behaviors playing a role in the workplace? So the, this forced experiment in working from home is a perfect example of Parkinson's law where work has expanded to fill the time we've given it. So in um, a data set of 3 million people in 16 global cities, my colleagues observed that the average workday has increased by about 50 minutes. People are sending more emails, working longer workdays. They have less face time. Every conversation needs to be a meeting. In a paper that's coming out in a couple of weeks from our lab in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, we show in a survey of almost 40,000 remote workers living all over the world that people report feeling less productive, more unproductive, they're doing more chores. Women are disproportionately affected. In our data, the working women will have 12 more calendar days of chores and childcare than working men in 2021. And this is also an opportunity as workplaces are starting to reimagine what the workday looks like to really start to have these important conversations around prioritization of time, about really what is acceptable around work hours, what is necessary. I think employers do have a lot of responsibility right now, given that the pandemic has been so challenging, especially for working parents, 
to start thinking again proactively about what strategies they can take to help employees manage this remote work environment that's very demanding, very tiring, and where employees are constantly switching between work and personal time so they feel more distracted. What can employers do to help make the work experience better for all employees, especially while working remotely, when many employees there's a lot of inequality in employees' experiences right now. So I do really think now is a key point for organizations to start really developing a long-term strategy about what they want the remote workday to look like in the work-from-home environment to the extent it persists in 2021 and beyond. Ashley, one of the kind of long-term strategy approaches that we have been taking with our clients recently in regards to um, this this importance of valuing time is what we call uh, the employee value proposition, a, really articulating a crisp description of the employee experience. It's really, it's a contract of sorts. It outlines what employees can expect at work in exchange for their productivity and performance. And that contract has fundamentally shifted in the last year, given all of the data that you just walked through. And I'm wondering if you you can talk a little bit about how, uh, from a behavioral science perspective, how employees respond to a new contract, a new list of commitments, um, galvanizing words, but also backed with concrete commitments or operational changes that are all in service of the business strategy. Can you talk a little bit about um, about how the, the behavioral component reacts to something like a new contract? Yeah, I would say, and I know you have research on this too, authenticity really matters and demonstration from the senior leadership around putting time first really matters. So it's one thing to put out flexible work policies, non-cash incentives to help save employees time. And I have a lot of data suggesting just offering these kinds of benefits can go a long way in promoting employee satisfaction. So when my team and I analyzed 50,000 employee responses from a Glassdoor survey, we found that non-cash rewards such as generous parental leaves, flex time, more sick days had a larger effect on job satisfaction than money did. And so in one data set, we actually found that these kinds of non-cash benefits um, produced the average amount of job satisfaction as an additional $60,000 in annual salary. So there is something to be said about as you're reimagining this contract, redesigning this contract with your workforce to explicitly highlight the ways in which you're going to put employees' lives as something that's important to you as an organization, not just their professional productivity and career trajectory, but recognizing that they have other things that they care about and then really spelling out and highlighting how you're going to allow them to thrive in other areas of their lives is really important. And we see that in the data. However, we also know from other research that simply having these policies isn't enough or having these benefits isn't enough if employees don't feel like they can take them without repercussion, if they don't see anyone around them taking them. This is where social norms come into play. So we have some data, for example, that even really simple decisions like whether or not an employee feels comfortable asking for more time on adjustable deadline at work, that most employees will not ask for more time, even if they think 
that it was going to improve their performance because they're too worried about what their colleagues are going to think of them. Women, junior employees are even more likely to be reticent to ask for more time on an adjustable deadline. When we put in a policy, so we've run experiments where we put in a formal policy describing this is how you could ask for more time in an adjustable deadline at work. This mitigates a gender gap and makes people feel more comfortable. But it's critically important that the manager is communicating it directly to employees and employees don't have to ask for that extension request to their direct manager. So the manager has to license the behavior, but maybe at the beginning, it, that's not the person they should be reporting to because they're still worried about actually uptaking the behavior. Um, similarly, this policy goes a lot further in organizations where employees, especially junior employees, see the management taking time off or asking for more time or talking about the importance of time and family. In the absence of having senior leadership walk the talk, these policies will not go far enough for encouraging uptake. Even if you provide them and you provide this cultural script and you lay out the different strategies you're going to take, it really does take effort on behalf of the direct managers and senior leadership to demonstrate, not just tell, but show that they also live these principles and values, that they're also using these benefits and that it's something to be celebrated as opposed to being hidden. You can take it, but we're not gonna talk about it. Ashley, you've talked already about some of the benefits to organizations of paying attention to this and making these changes. You've mentioned, for example, increased job satisfaction, or happier employees. What are some other benefits for those brass knuckle type business folks who want more metrics, uh, things like, for instance, talent attraction and retention or other traditional business metrics that leaders look at to make decisions? How are those affected by this? Yeah, so we have some field experimental data showing that applicants are more likely to apply when organizations highlight these cultural elements like vacation days, when they're front and center highlighted, when the cash value of those benefits is highlighted, it signals to potential employees, your organization really cares about work-life balance. You're really putting these other things front and center, even in your job ad. So we saw an increase just by highlighting the value of the vacation benefit something really subtle, um, increased applications by about 10% for a white collar engineering job in one field experiment that we have. We also see that describing zero benefits around work-life balance, flex flexibility, going from describing zero benefits to describing four benefits, increased job applications on a, a national wide job board by 15%. And that was true across industries. So highlighting, emphasizing, having a culture that puts time and flexibility first can definitely help on the attraction piece of the equation. It also helps with retention. So organizations pre-pandemic were lo losing 32 days each year to reduce productivity for every depressed and stressed out employee. And this costs U.S. organizations, $44 billion each year. So by improving the mental health of workers, by helping employees better navigate demands between work and life, this is also going to increase the productivity and longevity of your workforce and ultimately save you money in the long run. So you know how like a few years ago, it was really cool to everyone to have, you know, 
um, ping pong tables in the office and that was gonna just be the silver bullet to solving engagement issues. I'm wondering if, if you have any research on, or if you know what, what you're seeing that, that focusing on time is, isn't something that's gonna go away when the pandemic's over. You were studying this long before the pandemic. Um, so a pandemic heightened it, but we're not going to then get over this. Yeah, this is really important. So it is important to recognize this is not a trend. Employees were on an upward trajectory of stress and burnout all over the globe prior to the pandemic. The pandemic has really emphasized and exaggerated these effects, but this was long in existence for decades. It, if you look at G, if you look at Gallup World Poll data, you see that the amount of full-time employed adults all over the world, regardless of where they live, who report feeling stressed and overwhelmed, has gone up year over year over year for the last two decades. And we really need to flatten that curve. And now is a great opportunity, a great moment, because so many of us are reimagining our workday, reimagining our organizations, restructuring, reallocating resources to really put time front and center. It's not that this is a new issue. It's always been an issue, especially for working parents, certain demographic groups, people who are caregiving. It's just never been more of an issue, but never have we had more of an opportunity to reimagine what work should be and can be. And I hear so many more conversations because we are in a forced experiment. If I told, I'm working with a top three management consulting firm right now, and if we told them they would all be working from home for over a year and we wanted them to do that and then experiment how that their work would feel, they would laugh at us. They would never do that experiment. But here we are living in this experiment. And so that's why it's so important to start being agile to start trying new ways of working to really put employees well-being and mental health front and center because I'm observing in the all of the qualitative interviews I've been doing since March almost a full year of tracking top tier management consultants the the best of the best they're burnt out they're stressed out they're leaving their job at record rates um, in part because of lack of organizational leadership to really put time and work-life balance front and center. It's always been an issue in that industry, but right now they have an opportunity to actually set breaks, boundaries, and transitions in the workday to really be focused on time because they have so much more control over it than they used to than when they were at a client site for four days of the week. So this is why I'm so excited about this moment as an opportunity for us to have these conversations and to really take seriously the notion that time affluence matters in the workplace, not just for well-being and burnout and these softer metrics, but for the harder business metrics too. Employees no longer want to work in a rigid organization that's going to force them to work nine to nine every day, all day, that they can't even go for a run in the middle of the day while they're stuck working at home. And I really do see that the most innovative organizations are going to be the ones that figure out flexibility and trust employees to manage their schedule, manage their work, and not monitor employees, but give them the freedom to make their own decisions. There's been some recent work in the four-day work week uh, example from Andrew Barnes. So that's all done in the in Europe, in places where there's less strong work norms. But they've had massive success with basically 
employees hit a KPI for the week. And if they there's a set KPI at the beginning of the week, if employees hit it in four days, they get Friday off. And they also... I mean, in the U.S., I get the question of, well, will they just work 80 hours in four days <laughs> or something? Um, that's not the point of it. Um, so their um, employees are don't feel that need. Um, and there's been huge success in productivity, retention, engagement, profit for the companies because employees feel energized to bring new ideas into the organization. So I really see time as something to take seriously and will be a continued point of discussion going forward. This is so interesting, Ashley. We really have loved having you on the program. Wanted to ask you one last question related to a keyword that you just used, which was trust. You talked about the employers or the organizations showing that they trust the employees to still be able to get work done while respecting the value of their time. How do you think that works in the reverse? How do you think organizations implementing these things perhaps would increase employee trust? So if you tell an employee that I will let you work from anywhere, I, you know, will set up sprints, we'll do community events, but work whenever you want, work on your schedule, tell me when you want to be logged in. That sends such a signal to an employee of, wow, my my organization doesn't feel like they need to hold my hand. They know that they hired someone that is committed and cares about the organization. And sure, it is possible that some freeloading may occur in that system, but that's a good selection criteria. You want people who you can trust. and But to figure that out, you have to give people a long leeway to experiment, to get work done, to, I mean, even one very simple, very concrete tactical strategy that many very successful organizations have tried is say, on the company dollar, spend 80% of your time doing the things that the organization would directly benefit from right here, right now. Spend 20% of your time doing whatever the hell you feel like. And that creates innovation and trust and inspires employees to think, wow, I'm getting 20% time to do whatever I would like. And that's where Gmail came from, because that's what Google did for a while. A lot of other companies have implemented it too. We've run field experiments on this idea. It doesn't have to be a radical transformation of how you work, where you work. It could be something as simple as giving employees time to innovate or to socialize or to work a couple of days a week, wherever they feel like and trust that employees will make good use of that time. Elena, it sounds like we need to ask for a bill code for whatever the hell we want. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I definitely advocate for that. <laughs> I have one of those at HBS if you're curious. I have, it's called a discretionary research fund. It's don't ask, don't tell, and it's great. <laughs> facilitated a lot of creative, collaborative interactions. <laughs> Ashley, I'm wondering if you can leave our listeners with the top three things we should all keep in mind on our journey to be tech smart. I would say right now, when many of us are still working remotely, don't forget to schedule breaks, end of day rituals, and boundaries. It's really easy given that there's not a lot of places for us to go safely right now still to work in the time that we should be allocating for leisure. So build in a virtual commute. Don't take meetings for when you would have been commuting to the office. Go for a run instead or 
jump on your exercise bike or cook a nice meal and have something at the end of the day to look forward to, a conversation with a friend or a family member so that it reminds you that there's other things that you could be doing to really stop and take a break. The other thing I would try to remind ourselves of is, I don't know about you, but I'm sure many of us are feeling very... Um, it's not a necessarily boredom. There's research suggesting boredom hasn't gone up, but just a lack of variety in life. Um, and so one thing that I'm advocating for right now that seems to be landing well from a personal perspective is to try to treat your weekends like a vacation. Are there things that you can do to really savor the limited amount of free time that you have off right now? Pick up a good book, start a hobby engage in so many people's other pandemic hobbies. We just made bagels for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I'm so far behind. But I would say try to build in a little bit of savoring, which is harder to do. It's a very anxious time. But really start to treat your time off like the gift that it is because many of us do spend a lot of our waking hours working. Um, and that's great. It's fine. But we also need to feel as happy and satisfied with ourselves for having a really meaningful experience away from work as well. So try to celebrate your non-work wins just as you would your work wins. Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise and knowledge. Elena and I have really enjoyed this conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to the Trustcast and Edelman Podcast. Thanks for listening to The Trustcast. The Trustcast is produced by Tara Zafar and Shireen Pathak. Don't forget to follow Edelman PR on Twitter and visit us on edelman.com. Thanks so much and have a great day.